Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Arthur Millick. He is the Associate Director and Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's B. Kenneth Simon Center of American, for American Studies. Uh, he has an article in the latest issue of the Claremont Review called The Tyranny of the Marginalized. That's our topic for today. Welcome, Arthur. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, actually, before getting to that article, I want to mention another article. Rusty uh, mentioned another article you did in the latest issue of First Things. He singled that out for a special commentary. It was an article about the university. It was in National Affairs? Yes. What was, uh, Arthur, just, just tell our listeners, what was that article? What was the point? What were you making there? Sure. Well, look, universities are the foundation stone of any serious civilization. And ours, as everyone already knows, have been overtaken by the left since the 60s. And in that time, conservatives have done almost everything under the sun to try and make them better, to try and get them to serve their purpose, which is supporting the nation. Uh, educating citizens, creating capable scientists, and at the highest level of liberal education, creating people that are capable of truly thinking freely. And in their attempts over the past 60 years, conservatives have tried to fund things like inviting speakers to campuses, independent centers on campuses, funding tenure lines. Everything that you can think of has been done. And since then, things have only gotten worse, such that conservatives are sometimes begging merely to be heard on campuses. And so the idea is, why do we tolerate this? Why do taxpayers, do decent, well-meaning citizens, allow the federal government to actively fund these institutions, which are working to undermine the nations? It has to stop. And the way to get it to stop is this twofold method. On the one hand, you privatize student loans. This is to get to the second or mid-tier of universities. And if you do that, Wells Fargo will not give you $300,000 to study grievance studies at Wellesley. They simply won't. <laughs> and almost all of these universities live year to year in terms of their budget. So if student loans are privatized, many of these places will go under. And I think that's a good thing. And in terms of the upper tier, which will be immune uh, to student loans becoming privatized, Harvard, Yale, et cetera. Well, uh, they get a lot of money from the federal government to do research. Yale, for example, gets $500 million a year every year. And what exactly they do with that money is somewhat opaque. Now, sure, a lot of it goes towards credible sciences and defense, but another chunk of it goes to God knows what. And a lot of that money, it's plausible to suspect, is siphoned off to support the diversity infrastructure. 
And so what you have is uh, a, a university that hides behind the legitimacy of the sciences while defrauding taxpayers in terms of indoctrinating young people and uh, working uh, at a feverish pace to undermine the nation. Did you see yesterday or the day before the questioner in, in uh, a discussion with Bernie Sanders, she, a young woman, looked 25 years old, she says, I'm getting out of law school this year and I have $250,000 in student loan debt. And Bernie shakes his head in dismay over this, and his solution is a, quote, modest tax on Wall Street speculation, and that's going to pay to make all public colleges free for the students, and it will enable us to forgive all student debt, student loan debt. Uh, what's wrong with that, Arthur? Well, what I think is that fewer people should be going to colleges to begin with. Okay. Uh, I, I think that, you know, in 1970, about 20% of the college age population in America went to college. The last year I could find is uh, 1895 or so when 10% went to college. What was wrong with, 90, with 1970 when only 20% went? Hmm. Now it's about 40%. Uh, these young people go to college, many of them drop out with huge debt. Mm -hmm. That I think largely is the fault of the colleges who accept underqualified students knowing that they will likely fail out while collecting all of the money that they've gotten from student loans, the kid leaves humiliated, disconsolate, no path in life, having learned nothing. Uh, so I actually think that it would be better for the nation if fewer people went to college. It might actually make colleges lower their, uh, their tuition rates a little bit, make college a little more affordable for everyone. What was the title of the article? It's called... Preventing Suicide by Higher Education, and it can be found at National Affairs. Very good. All right, now, the current essay, The Tyranny of the Marginalized. Now, you say something interesting at the very opening. Uh, you say, from the New Deal to Obergefell versus Hodges, the left's fundamental transformation of America over the past century is astounding. A key to that achievement has been the discipline to hasten beyond recent victories and commence new battles. And, and I have to say, I remember during Obama's administration, I think Peggy Noonan wrote an, an op-ed on how the, the Obama administration seemed to turn so quickly to the next issue, the next crisis, the, the next decision over something very big, and that there was no, there's no pause. There's no time for people to sort of absorb all of the big changes and that seems to me to be a characteristic of, of progressivism. There's always so much more to do. No matter how many victories you line up, we got to move on to the next one. What's the rush? Uh, well, the rush is a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the left is considerably better than the right in funding their enterprises. And so if you look at it from the cynical perspective, there are a lot of people whose careers, whose honor, livelihood, depends on this. The infrastructure is simply bigger. Hmm. Uh, that's part of it. Uh, but well, I don't... It? So it's like, it's like the, 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 the diversity, uh, the affirmative action people at, at a college, they can't talk too much about their successes because the more successful they are, the less they are necessary. Yeah. Or if you look at uh, the kind of white middle class activist class in San Francisco fighting, quote unquote, fighting homelessness. Uh, they want, in a certain way, 
more and more homeless people. They want the problem to continue. They want to pretend to solve it. Uh, so, but, but I, I don't want to be too cynical in this because I don't think that the main motive is simply lucre. It's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is that, look, uh, these are largely atheistic people who believe that justice does not fall uh, upon God uh, in adjudicating the evil in this world, but it belongs to them. And so they can be the transformative force in the universe to bring about a new project that has hitherto never existed. Uh, And I think that that is a considerably stronger motive, uh, one that you can devote your entire existence to, an easily articulated abstract thesis about the nature of the world uh, that makes you righteous, that makes you decent, that easily pegs your enemies for you and shows you how superior you are to them, that flatters your vanity. I don't mean to, you know, indict. There are decent people uh, doing these kinds of things, but I think that that's what the the psychology is. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I, I I am not sure how to combat that psychology, except with a a, a counter strength. I don't know what will make that psychology become less indignant over 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 the injustice because you you can't say well you're you're exaggerating here you you, you don't you need a more realistic perspective on what human beings are capable of, of attaining and so that I think would only incense those people yeah I think that that's right and in a certain way the the nature of their fanaticism means that they can only be checked by an equal force and this is one of the problems of a lot of conservatism today, the constant mantra that we need to go out there and fight in the battle of ideas. But you can only do that if there are two sides, one of which is listening. And not only are a lot of them not listening, they have total contempt for us. They want us silenced. They think that we are uh, backwater evil beings who subscribe to evil doctrines that need to be defeated through the means that they have already, to a great extent, defeated the right. Building institutions, taking them away from us. That's the key. I mean, if you look at, what I like to do is you take a piece of paper, you divide it left and right, and you line up on the left. What assets does the the left possess? Well, they possess the administrative state, the press, now the Fortune 500s, big tech. um, Hollywood. Hollywood, the opinion industry generally. Yeah. The art world. The art world. Academia. That's right. Public and public lower education, and much private lower education okay, as, so, as well. So what if we it stop? Up. That's right. What if we stop there? Not only are those things that have been taken from the right, muscled away from the right over the past, let's say, 40, 50 years, what does the right have? What are those assets that the right has to combat the ones that the left has? And... The list is very short. Mm. And so until we either take away some of their institutions or build up our own, we will lose. One of the strategies is really what is the focus of your your essay, and that is the threat to the First Amendment, the threat threat to free speech. And conservatives, you say, don't quite appreciate this. I'm going to read one sentence, a couple sentences, and let you let you go. Many conservatives 
Reluctant to believe what seems unbelievable, do not fully appreciate that the campaign to curtail speech in order to promote social justice is gathering strength and capturing powerful institutions. In the not very distant future, it could succeed. Yeah, I think it really could. Uh, I think that this will be a fight that takes place basically in three realms, um, in the courts, on campuses, and in big tech. And the courts will come last. The real fight today over the future of the freedom of speech is on campuses and in big tech, who are preparing the public, or anyways attempting to, to concede that speech should be considerably curtailed. Uh, and once that happens, just like it happened on innumerable other issues that the left has won on, the courts will rule uh, in their favor. Uh, anyways, that's how it's tracked over the past 40 years or so. Uh, and so the right should be thinking much more seriously about where this could go. Uh, and the way to begin with that is to look at what hate speech actually means to the left. Um, it's a misnomer to think that hate speech has anything to do with racial epithets or Holocaust denial. It ain't that. Neither is it an attempt to just get rid of hatred generally. That's the kind of argument for your wine aunt to be comfortable with the coming laws or the coming court rulings that would curtail speech. What it actually has to do with is taking away the speech of the oppressor group and elevating the speech of the so-called marginalized or oppressed or victims. And I remember when you had on campuses during the late 80s, when the, the you're, you're, you're too young to remember this, Arthur, but in the late 80s, we had a lot of speech codes created on college campuses. And every time those speech codes were challenged in court, they lost. They were struck down as violations of the First Amendment. But one of the things that we see on progressives' side is a defeat like that doesn't end the issue. They keep coming back. They keep pushing. And what, what you're saying is we're, we now may have more and more judges coming into place. The courts, as the culture shifts more and more toward, let's just say, a, a speech code mentality, and I think it's very strong among younger people, as well, that the courts are going to, we're going to see some speech codes maybe getting close to being upheld by the, by the courts. When you see the implementation just happening so broadly in media, on campus, in schools, everywhere. Yeah, that's how you prepare the public to accept it uh, so that when the ruling comes down, it won't see that, seem that bad or may even seem natural to some. Um, the, the, the trouble is that there are already very serious, in my mind, precedents inside of current law that could be used to develop some kind of new national level, uh, uh, either criminalization, which means that you would go to prison or something like that. I doubt that that would happen in America, though that already exists in all of Western Europe. That, that in was Canada. one thing you noted. This is, the U.S. is the only one now that has these strong free speech protections. Yeah, the US is an outlier. It is the last holdout. And we are constantly being accosted and browbeaten by other nations, uh, as I said, Western Europe, Canada, especially the UN. Uh, the UN's uh, current 
Secretary General. Secretary General has made it his number one policy to rid the world of hate speech because he thinks it's the root of all evil. So there's a lot of pressure, but but when you look at some of the legal precedents that already exist, that's where the first of the battles will be. And they exist in two realms. The first is if you look at the landmark cases that were used to get eventually to the legalization of same-sex marriage, you see this huge emphasis on the word dignity. Now, dignity in the Christian tradition means that, uh, or it's dignity is grounded in the Christian tradition in the sense that we have a soul, that we are, uh, we are dignified human beings because we're connected to a divine order. In the American tradition, or let's say in the Enlightenment tradition, we have dignity because we're rational beings. Therefore, we have forethought, and therefore we can be held accountable for our actions. So we can be free, in other words. But in this new understanding of dignity, which is radically different, it means the capacity to create your own identity and the demand, the right to demand of others that they recognize your identity. And so that was the concept in Obergefell, in the previous uh, uh, major cases leading up to Obergefell. And it will be through that, I think, as one of the means, as one of the channels to criminalizing or outlawing hate speech, because the idea will be you cannot enjoy your identity if somebody undermines it or is critical of it. So that's number one. The second one is through um, civil rights laws, especially as they are enforced by the EEOC. Uh, there are already uh, regulations that state that certain comments, certain speech in workplaces can be enforced as anti-discrimination uh, on anti-discrimination grounds. So that will be another legal track that this follows. And one of the central pieces of your article is a book uh, entitled "Must We Defend Nazis?" Okay, why the First Amendment should not protect hate speech and white supremacy. And this it was first published twenty years ago, and 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 it's very popular. It's been reissued a couple of professors or the they're, they're law professors at the University of Alabama who wrote it and what underlies their argument about outlawing certain forms of speech is really a, a, a social psychological theory that the hate speech does profound damage to oppressed peoples and you you say according to Delgado and Stefanchik, Hate speech has devastating effects. Exposure to it causes hypertension, high blood pressure, even strokes, psychological harms, mental illness, and psychosomatic disease, alcoholism, drug addiction. This is a highly speculative theory, but it's very flexible. It sounds persuasive, and it's bad. It's bad that these things are happening. What do you, what do you, what do you make with that psychological theory? Well, two things. Number one... One can count on all of the corrupt social scientists who are already doing it, but will continue to expound these kinds of theses and allegedly prove them in the coming years as this battle revs up in order to persuade the public. And the press, of course, will go along with this uh, to continue to persuade the public of it. The second thing is that there's this bizarre kind of contradiction that you see in a lot of those that write to uh, criminalize hate speech, which is this, that on the one hand, for all of the marginalized, hate speech causes this kind of devastating damage. 
And I don't deny that it's unpleasant to be called names. I mean, you, one has to be sensitive to these kinds of things. But they say that it causes this devastating damage. And yet, on the other hand, as it turns out, those who are the oppressed, the victims, the marginalized, unlike the oppressor, have a perfect knowledge of justice, have a crystal clear capacity to present their just case, and therefore are wiser than the oppressors who are deformed by their own power. And so therefore you get into this psychology where the victims are both broken, but also pure and wise. It's, it's one way you put it is they're both superior and inferior to their oppressors. Uh, what are, you, 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 you cite three ways in which uh, people want to combat hate speech. What are those three ways? So look, if you concede that hate speech causes the absolutely devastating harm that it does, one could plausibly say, okay, my group that is harmed in these ways will live separately. We will build our own civilization. We will exclude ourselves completely from those that cause this kind of verbal oppression and build our own society. But of course, the left doesn't want that. So that's dismissed. The two solutions, therefore, become the following. Well, first of all, uh, when you look at the civil rights movement, you see it's both a success and a failure, these authors say. It's a success because of voting rights, obviously. It's a success because of fair housing. It's a success because of equal employment. But their criticism is that all that has done is moved uh, racial or prejudice against the marginalized into deep into the recesses of the minds of the oppressors. And what they say, and who are these oppressors, we should say, for these two authors, they mention no other group as the oppressors except whites. That's, those are their words, mm -hmm. and we should take them seriously. Uh, so since that desire uh, to harm, as they think, uh, the marginalized, exists now only in the recesses of the oppressor group's mind, you have to get rid of it. And the way to do that is by criminalizing or outlawing their speech and only their speech, because remember, this is a one-way street. The point is not to uh, limit the speech of the marginalized. They should have an increasingly larger and larger voice. Right. The idea is to uh, diminish or outlaw or ban the speech of the oppressor so that those thoughts those prejudicial thoughts will eventually go away in their minds. Well, it's it's like the, the cases when uh, a teacher uses the N-word in a classroom purely for academic instructional purposes. Maybe if you're talking about hate speech or, you know, as I do, I, te you know, I, I teach American literature. I teach Frederick Douglass. The N-word is, is all over there in Douglass. Uh, that becomes very, very dicey and one can be brought up as as teachers have been brought up on complaints. And I, I remember seeing one college president say, that word has no place on this campus. Of course, if you listen to the music that all of the kids are listening to, you're gonna hear the N word all over the place on that campus a thousand times a day. There you have the, but but the singers right. are are generally African-American. So right. that, that that's that selective form of banning going right. on here. And it actually goes further than that uh, because these two authors make a point that I think is representative of 
certain parts of the left that have a large voice and a lot of power, which is that they concede that actually outlawing or criminalizing hate speech won't be enough because those thoughts will still exist. Courts cannot descend into each individual mind. And so there's another component to this. The other component is to make of the marginalized national heroes, to basically mythologize them, to give them their own narratives. And the key is to never allow anyone to contradict those, his, those, those heroic narratives that they create about themselves. And that's the way that you persuade eventually the oppressor to get rid of his prejudice. So it's, 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 sort of, it's an inversion of values that are, that are culture wide. You know, we're, we're going to build a, uh, a whole system of myths, stories, traditions, portrayals, art, movies, and so on that simply make, make the oppressed into, into the heroic figures. And what used to be heroic is now looks like exploitation. Uh, and we, 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 we tear down the monuments, George Washington and, and, and Thomas Jefferson. That's part of this, this just deep getting... It's interesting. I haven't heard this theory before, but this is how you get deep into people's heads to eliminate bad thoughts. That's right. All of the images of society must be not only given under the context of this very narrative to inverse, to make uh, the power structures inverse. But in addition, you must ruthlessly enforce the borders. You must ruthlessly enforce those who would question those things. So here's one example. This, the New York Times 1619 project, which I suspect many of your listeners have heard, is a very long essay that basically says America is fundamentally racist in its DNA. Right. And the idea is that this is a new narrative that the marginalized can believe in that, by the way, is based on a multitude of outrageous factual errors. But in this fully developed hate speech regime that parts of the left wish upon this nation, it will not be possible to question the factual claims of those things. Higher, higher truth. It's a higher truth. Well, uh, last question, Arthur, and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. Do people like the authors of, of the, the book, those who want to ban hate speech, and those who look at you with this suspicion, we got to get deep into your heads, would they ever recognize themselves in, say, the portrayal of, of O'Brien in 1984? In the in the inquisitors, you know, who who are going to sit you down, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that you're really with us all the way. Here's the way I think. How do they see themselves? Right. So here's the way I, I think one should organize this question. Conservatives are fighting for, let's say, Republican government, self-rule based on natural rights. The left, on the other hand, represents a totally different regime that they want to implement. It ain't, we're speaking on different terms. They're not after self-rule. They're not after political liberty. And they know those, what they want and what we want are totally in conflict with one another. They know this. They know this. Um, here, let me read you a good quote from that book that we discussed. Um, it says, coming to grips with hate speech does pose serious problems for a society committed both to equality and to individual freedom. They know it. And what they're choosing 
is this regime of identity politics, namely uh, the full liberation, the full dignity and self-respect of the so-called marginalized that is, as they understand it, at the cost of those who are oppressors. Because there's only one identity that is not protected. That's the oppressor identity. Because his identity issues forth oppression. So when conservatives come back and they say, you, you want to change our, our very country. Well, they look at him and says, are you stupid? Of course we do. Right. It's only conservatives that don't understand that. <laughs> the left understands this fully. And just to add one last thing, when you think through, as I've tried to lay out today, uh, what kind of speech would and would not be permissible, they're right when they say that there's a conflict between self-rule and their regime. Many political issues are simply taken off the table if the regime of hate speech is implemented in America. So for instance, no more discussion of immigration. That kind of discussion harms the marginalized immigrant communities. No debate. No debate. No debate. Uh, no more discussion of the traditional family. That kind of speech harms lesbians and gays and feminists. No more discussions of crime. That kind of discussion harms many different uh, vibrant communities. Moreover, uh, so too are removed from the table of political discussion all sorts of issues that are called dog whistles. So for example, welfare policy reform. No more discussion of that. So when you ask yourself, how narrow does the range of political discussion become? It's almost non-existent. There's nothing that a free people can any longer discuss because that kind of speech would harm one community or other. And the idea is that, well, self-rule is not a good thing. Look what self-rule leads to. It just leads to prejudice, oppression, and marginalization. So that means that the, the progressives understand that they simply have to, they have to take over the institutions. They have to take the jobs. Because if, if, we've got, if we've got people fully in control of academia, the jobs, we don't need to worry about any more debate. We don't, we don't need to justify. We've, we've, got, we've got the power and we can, and we can move forward. Right. And we, we are, we're the ones who should be in power as well. Right. And the question becomes, how quickly will they move on this? If they move very quickly, like some countries in Europe have done, there will be huge backlash and resistance to it. But if they move slowly, which they are capable of doing, they are both ruthless and patient. And if they do that, then only a very tiny sliver of America will still believe in free speech, which as I keep saying, is connected to the dignity of self-rule as an ideal of what you're doing in politics. That's how they win. Arthur Millick, thank you. Been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.